morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Orban coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. super duper early morning wake up call for all of the all of you out west. You brave souls. Welcome. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening on this Wednesday morning. Coming up after the break, we will be joined by Kyle Williams, a blogger for the 93rd Minute. He's got some interesting uh, data that he, he has covered in several articles looking at the U.S. men's national team, and I look forward to... Uh, chatting with him and, and uh, going into detail on some of his findings. Um, one thing that I wanted to kind of kick off the show with is this article uh, from the nation.com. This is by uh, Ishmael Kushkush. U.S. soccer is neglecting Latino talent and it shows there are millions of youths playing soccer in the United States. So why is the men's national team so terrible um, this article takes a look at to, you know, into some of, uh, the issues and, uh, and it, and it picks up, uh, at the very top, looking at this, this group of young soccer players who were loaded into two vans on a sunny fall day in 2018, made their way from their hotel to a nearby sports complex in Ontario, Canada. The preparations to welcome the 36 potential stars were in place, a trailer for staff and volunteers, tents for coaches, scouts, and club representatives, and designated sections for medical staff and family members. On the sidelines, a camera was ready to record the exhibition game where the players would compete to gain the attention of scouts. There was even a balloon arch for them to walk under as they stepped on to the pitch. Players warmed up, and when they were done, Rafa Calderon, a staff member with Alianza de Football, the group organizing the five-day soccer showcase, called them together and said, quote, this is your time. Enjoy it. You are here because you belong here. You earned it. The players stepped off the field Then, along with their opponents from the Youth Development Academy, Real Socal, they walked in parallel lines under the balloons back to the center of the field where they shook hands with the referees and kicked off the match. Among those watching were representatives from 13 clubs in Liga MX, Mexico's professional soccer league, and two from the Mexican Football Federation, the sport's governing body in Mexico. Within the first day, I've already identified three players who are really interesting, said Jose Luis Real, the Sports Development and Youth Academy Director of the Mexican Soccer Club Toluca and a former Mexican national team coach. As of yesterday, I could have booked a flight back home and considered my job done. Mexican clubs and even the Mexican men's national team have routinely recruited, recruited players promoted by Alianza de Football, a San Francisco-based uh, organization dedicated to the development of Hispanic amateur players, amateur soccer. They include Edwin Lara, a U.S.-born player who played for Mexico's U-17 Mexican national team before later making a nationality switch to the U.S. team, and Jonathan Gonzalez, another Mexican-American player who was recruited by the Liga MX club Monterrey and played for the U.S. men's U-15 team. U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer Hugo Perez watched the players intently from the sidelines. He was impressed. Their players have good qualities and potential to play at a higher level. Alianza is the best organization in the country for helping all the soccer communities, especially the Latinos. And for the first time in the National Showcase's six-year history, the U.S. Soccer Federation, known simply as U.S. Soccer, the country's official governing body, sent one scout. Think about that. You have all of these representatives from Mexico. 
one scout from U.S. soccer. And it was the first time in the National Showcase's six-year history. Unbelievable. The history was that there's been very little communication. I would call once or twice a year just to remind them that we're out here, said Brad Rothenberg, an Alianza de Football co-founder. U.S. soccer had sent scouts to some of Alianza's local tryout events, said Rothenberg, but until last year, it had never sent anyone in an official capacity to the marquee showcase. There's never been a real concerted interest, he said. Where are you familiar with the name Rothenberg? If you've paid any attention to the U.S. Soccer Federation in the last 20, 30 years, you should know the name Rothenberg. Why? Because he's the son of former president of U.S. Soccer, Alan Rothenberg. So we have the former U.S. Soccer president's son co-founds an organization finding and developing and helping players get scouted. You have all of these scouts show up from Mexico and the U S soccer federation only bothers in its sixth year to finally send one scout. Rothenberg, the son of Alan Rothenberg, told me that U.S. soccer had ignored Hispanic players, coaches, and scouts for years, creating a diversity problem that's entrenched in the highest echelons of the sport. A 2014 study of U.S. men's national team players by journalist Roger Bennett and University of Chicago economics professor Greg Kaplan showed that U.S. men's national team players from the previous two decades were more likely to come from higher income white families than top American basketball and football players during the same period. The study was never published Though Bennett discussed some of the findings on a podcast. The 2019 U.S. men's national team Gold Cup roster of 23 players included four Latinos and seven black players, making the roster almost half minority, whereas the 94 World Cup roster of 22 players included five Latino and only two black players, according to data provided by U.S. Soccer. While on the surface, this signals an improvement. The major talent pools from which the U.S. men's national team recruits remain disproportionately white when it comes to homegrown talent. Data obtained by the nation and type investigations from Alianza de Football shows that for the 2018 season, only 7% of players in Major League Soccer are U.S.-born Latinos, and 11% are U.S.-born black players. There is a higher percentage of international players of color in the MLS, but they aren't eligible to play on the U.S. men's national team. In 2017, about 38% of the league's players were eligible eligible to play for the U.S. men's national team, according to ESPN FC. It's an excellent exercise of improving but not getting any better, said Paul Gardner, a columnist at Soccer America. One of the reasons is that we are not using the full repertoire of talent that's available to us. I interviewed more than two dozen people connected with soccer in the United States, included including former U.S. soccer officials, former men's national team players, Mexican national team coaches, U.S. youth club coaches and staff, teenage players, and sports writers. Nearly everyone agreed. A big part of the reason the U.S. men's national team doesn't benefit from the full repertoire of talent, especially top black and Latino players, is that American soccer scouts coaches and officials neglect youth clubs and leagues that are not affiliated with U.S. soccer. Instead, 
U.S. men's national team recruiters focus their efforts on exclusive development academies and pay-to-play youth soccer clubs and leagues, which are more likely to have white, higher-income players. Scouring the United States for talent, scouts have had a difficult job. They're limited in number and work in a, a continent-sized country. According to U.S. to U.S. soccer, there are 90 part-time scouts distributed throughout the U.S. working with boys. They report to three full-time scouts. That's a joke. That's a joke. We do not take soccer in this country seriously. If we have three full-time scouts... 90 part-time scouts for boys soccer in this country. Get out of here. What a joke. Neil Booth, U.S. Soccer's chief communications officer, wrote in an email that one of the full-time scouts was a native Spanish speaker of Argentine descent and 20 of the 90 part-time scouts spoke Spanish, though he couldn't say how many were Latino. We typically have at least one Spanish-speaking scout in each of the major markets. He added that there were three part-time Spanish-speaking scouts, each in Southern California, Texas, New York, New Jersey, and Florida. Booth did not break down the ethnicities of the -the on-the-ground scouts further. Critics insist this is not enough to reach beyond the familiar networks of wealthier teams and leagues. By not hiring enough scouts from immigrant and minority communities, they say, U.S. soccer officials have failed to find and develop more talent from working class communities of color. My feeling about the future prospects of the United States in world soccer is that it ought to be better than anybody, said Gardner, who has written on on the neglect of Latino talent in American soccer for more than 30 years. In addition to financial resources and a large population, he explained, the U.S. has millions of youth who play soccer, especially in immigrant communities of color. The only country that comes close to us is Brazil, and the Brazilians have managed to come up with some sort of soccer that allows a place for everybody. And this is the crux of the issue. What he just said there. The Brazilians have managed to come up with some sort of soccer that allows a place for everybody. Man, I wish I had more time today to go through the rest of this. We're going to have to come back to this on tomorrow's show. We will leave it there. But my goodness, unbelievable and and a good stopping point for for uh, for now. Um, That is the key. Going through this article, I get frustrated because it just highlights the ineptitude, the apathy of the U.S. Soccer Federation. There is no reason why a country like ours, with the resources we have, are not proactively trying to provide opportunity and access to everyone. If you want excellence... Why are we not trying to find a place for everyone? That's not going to come with gatekeepers. That's not going to come with having to pay inordinate amounts of money to get access, whether in pay-to-play soccer, where a family's having to fork out thousands of dollars a year, or when you want to play professional soccer and you got to fork out millions. Those millions are not going into the, to, to the soccer on the field. It's going to buying into a gentleman's club, an owner's club. It's not going into the product on the field. Buy-in fees, expansion fees, those are monies not going into the game. Anyone, anytime someone tells you that they've invested so much money into the game, they have not. When you are buying into a league, you are buying into an ownership stake that's not putting money into your local market that's not necessarily putting money into your players and staff that's buying access that's money that should have gone into your players 
into your stadium, into your communities. It's unbelievable how we have gotten this so wrong in this country. That's such a good way to put it. That the Brazilians have managed to come up with some sort of soccer that allows a place for everybody. You know what that is? It's called an open system. You build a club. You put it down wherever you want to put it down. No boundaries. No territories. May the best organization win. On the field and off of it. You run your business better than anyone else. You run your soccer club better than the, than the competition around you. That is the key. And if you do it well, you should get rewarded. You should get promoted. You should raise and get higher. Higher up in the pyramid. The system of connected leagues. This is what our country should be about. It should be a grand soccer experiment that's open to everyone. If you think you can do it well, go for it. We'd love to have you. This should be our motto. It should be our mentality. It should be the way we approach scouts and players and coaches and clubs, but it is not. It is a problem, a big problem, and it is hurting us so much. I look forward to getting back into this article again tomorrow. We are simply out of time in this segment, and we have, uh, we've got to get to Kyle here coming up after the break. But um, a great piece from the nation on uh, the state of American soccer. It's a sad state, but it is a state, nonetheless, that we need to work diligently to find solutions and implement them so that we can do what we do better. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand. If you don't know about Ductic Brand, you should check them out at D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. When you go there and you check out the hats, when you check out the shirts, when you check out the notebooks, all the cool products they have. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. You'll be glad you did, and they will be too. And you should check them out at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. the show thanks for tuning in uh we are delighted to be joined by kyle williams he is a soccer blogger for the 93rd minute kyle welcome to the show how are you i'm doing well how are you doing daniel i am doing well uh happy to have you on the show and um wanted to kind of start here where um 
You posted an article uh, a little while back um, about the state of U.S. soccer, a report card on the U.S. Soccer Federation based on an analysis of the U.S. men's national team's international tournament results from 1990 until today. And wanted to have you on the show to kind of dig into some of that uh, data as well as some of your thoughts. Uh, Kind of where did that whole idea, what, what was the genesis of that idea for you to kind of go back and why did you pick 1990 as kind of the year that you wanted to start as your point of origin for this article? Absolutely. Yeah, great questions. So the backdrop was basically uh, that fateful night, uh, late 2017, where the U.S. fell to Trinidad and Tobago and failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. So I've always been a numbers and data guy my whole life. So following that loss, um, you know, soccer Twitter was blowing up. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone's writing things. And I had always been of the mindset, um, even prior to that game, even prior to that campaign, that um, the U.S., you know, I thought I had a pretty good grasp of where the U.S. stood in terms of other soccer nations in the world. And I was disappointed by the narratives and stories. I saw that, you know, this was such a collapse. This was such a disappointment. This was so surprising. Whereas to me, sure, that one result in that one game was, you know, surprising. That's not what people expected. But on the whole, I didn't think the U.S. missing a World Cup was surprising. So the reason I chose 1990 was that that was the first World Cup the U.S. made since I believe they made one or two, you know, 50 some years before that. So in the modern era, that was the first in 1990 after that Paul Caligari goal, famous goal to qualify them there. So I basically said, all right, so what has happened? How, how has the U.S. done over this period of almost 30 years? So just to give the quick background, uh, um, I looked at all international tournaments. Um, so basically the World Cup, Confederations Cups, Copa Americas, the Gold Cups, and uh, the Olympics over that period and broke down and sliced the data based on who the manager was, who the opponents were, location, um, the results, etc., So looking at that from 1990, building into the present, uh, what kind of trends did you find? What was uh, standing out to you as you kind of began your research in looking at the results and the coaching and the players? You know, what kind of metrics or data was really kind of popping up to you that led you to this opinion when you watched the collapse in Trinidad and Tobago in 2017 and, and, and you were not that shocked by the results? So kind of going back to the beginning of your studies, you started looking at this. What things were really standing out to you? Well, I think one of the first things for me is I, um, I just was recalling from memory that, you know, the U.S. had failed to qualify for World Cups in the past, not at the senior team level, but they had missed the multiple Olympics, two consecutive, three of the last four. They had missed Youth World Cups at the U20 and U17 level in the past decade. So just right there, I was like, this is not an anomaly for the U.S. to fail to qualify. This is actually more of a trend that's happened across all age levels. And particularly in terms of the Olympics and the Confederations Cup, I didn't realize how we actually had some positive results in the, the late 90s, early 2000s there. And a lot of the key players on those teams ended up being key players on the 2002 World Cup team, the 2009 Confederations Cup team, which were probably the two high watermarks for the men's national team. So that immediately jumped out that, oh, as we've failed to qualify for these tournaments where players could gain invaluable experience, um, you know, that would have a downstream effect on the national team and, and the results thereafter. So looking at this, if you were to kind of put this onto a graph, um, sure. were you seeing kind of peaks and valleys or were you seeing kind of a, an overall steady decline? 
when you look at it from a from a graphical perspective, just just for the listener or the viewer, what what were you seeing from a trend perspective? Was it kind of a general kind of a wave of uh, peaks and valleys, or was it a steady decline that you were seeing uh, in your research? That that's a really interesting question because, uh, and probably because there's not a simple answer. I would say there, there's certainly no direct like up or down. I would say two things. One is that the U.S. was never really all that high, and we could get into that even with some of their the high water marks I just mentioned. There was definitely some uh, maybe not use the word luck, but opportun- opportunism that played a huge role in those um, results. So one, the U.S. was never all that high on a graph, and then two while the graph is not perfectly smooth or anything, to me, it does seem like um, the the slope of the graph would be trending downward, particularly over the past 10 to 15 years. And maybe just on that one point, um, one thing I looked at is on all the opponents, I kind of just took a semi-subjective, but but really just went over uh, the quality of the teams, dividing all the opponents into five tiers, Tier one being being the top teams in the world, winning World Cups, to tier five being, you know, some of the really small nations the U.S. plays in CONCACAF. And it broken down by the tier one and tier two countries that I that I um, uh, filtered for the U.S. since uh, the 2002 World Cup is two, two wins, 11 losses and two ties in uh, international competition and the two wins coming in the 2007 gold cup final versus Mexico and the 2009 confederation cup semifinal versus Spain. So in more than a decade, we haven't beaten a top 20 team in the world in any tournament. When you were going through and looking at the program, uh, you, you mentioned the Olympics, the Confederations Cups, uh, mm-hmm. as you know some things that you were tracking, um, and and mentioned that you know a lesson learned was that it was critically important to qualify for international tournaments. Uh, and you mentioned about the the experience that would be gained uh, by having these players uh, participate in the Olympics uh, as well as the opportunity to participate in the Confederations Cup. Um, when it comes to management, this is, a, this is a, a, a place that the Federation will often go in, in terms of a defense. Well, we just got to get the right guy. We've got to get the right person uh, at the helm. What did you find looking through the program as it related to you know, managerial performance? Yeah, that's a great, a great topic. Great question. Um, so something kind of surprising to me is that when I broke down the numbers, just looking at results, win, loss, wins, losses, and ties, I really didn't find any notable difference in managerial performance from 1990 to today. And if you look at the last you know, handful of coaches, everyone from Bora Molotinovich to Steve Sampson to Bruce Arena, Bob Bradley, and Jurgen Klinsmann, all, all had about the same win, loss, and tie percentage to an almost startling degree, but they all won about 60% of their matches, lost about 30, and then tied about 10%. And so just given you know the varying narratives and, and opinions and the different managers, it, was, it struck me as pretty surprising that really when you look at the numbers, they all performed just about the same. For a federation that's been enamored with the idea of having business and economics professors and and people, business professionals as its leaders over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so, uh, lawyers before that, um, how, how are we missing the data on this uh, in terms of uh, the fact that the managers are not making a difference? Um, you know, the, the, the old statement of uh, the numbers never lie, uh, right. you know. And so when we look at this data and we and we get into the the uh, the nuts and bolts, wins, loss, ties, percentages, roughly the same. uh when, when you compare that and then you look at the media narratives surrounding, um, you know, some managers that may get more criticized, especially, especially uh, of recent, uh, like a cleansman over others, when yet 
their performance was not really any better or worse. Uh, when you look at that from from, from a, just a number standpoint, um, it's a little alarming that the Federation hasn't taken that into account. Now, the one thing I would bring up in relation to Klinsman versus some other managers is he did seem to seek out um, as, as often as possible higher levels of competition, you know, taking the national team to Europe and, and so on and so forth. So for him to have done that and, and still, you know, maybe there's, there wasn't a big uptick in winning percentage uh, compared to his predecessors and those who've come after him. Um, you know, he, he still had roughly the same percentage, even though it might be against a little bit stiffer competition, but still no noticeable difference in terms of uh, success, in terms of the numbers. So um, did you find, going back to 1990 and into the present, did you find that uh, the coaching general, generally from a success standpoint on the field, was it pretty stagnant or were you seeing within the cycles of the managers? And I don't know if you actually tracked this, but did you see that, you know, in their first year or two in charge, they had more success versus towards the end or was it kind of consistent all the way across uh, over the decades beginning in 1990? Yeah, great question. Um, so one of the things there where as a, a data guy and a statistics guy is um, in, this, in the set I looked at, there's about 140 matches from 1990 in uh, international competition. So I, I didn't analyze friendlies just for the purpose of since there's nothing riding on them and sometimes different players aren't called in and the results don't matter. I didn't want those to skew the results. So I focused on just where you're playing to win. There's real competition at stake. But um, given that there's only about 140 matches, I didn't break it down to that tenure where in year one versus year two for certain managers but uh, I would love to have done that type of detail if there was more uh, data in the set. But just given the numbers, that wasn't really uh, practical because then we would have been just looking at one or two matches for some some years. But uh, but yeah, it, it is. It certainly was surprising that I didn't I didn't notice any any meaningful difference amongst the managers. And I do think that that goes to to your point earlier about you know the numbers don't lie. Is I think. Um, there's two components as well of an education issue in terms of, you know, all of us soccer in terms of fans, uh, the media, you know, the Federation itself. And, um, just, you know, and, um, I'm not, and um, from the media side, I haven't really seen people bring up these numbers. So I don't know if it's whether this information is out there and they're ignoring it. If it's, if it's not the type of thing that'll get them to views on their pages, but that's where, you know, just coming from a blogger perspective, something I found interesting, I wanted to share with, you know, the public at large. When you, uh, when you looked at the, uh, the, the U S managers, um, you noted that the uh, that there was an underperformance by the U.S. men's national team against stronger performance um, teams that that you ranked as kind of a tier one or tier two uh, level of opponent, and that was offset by improved performance against similar quality opponents that you had in in tier three. Did that hold across? all managers was that kind of pretty normal that every manager was generally getting the same results um so actually that's where we get into where i would characterize the u.s's performance as declining over the past decade or so so um uh jürgen klinsman for instance is a good example he actually while all the managers were very close in win percentage he actually had the highest win percentage by a couple of points but he had zero wins versus tier one or tier two opponents. And he, so he capitalized by having a better win percentage against the tier three kind of middle mid-level opponents. Um, whereas Bradley arena and Samson were able to pluck off one or two wins versus um, some of those better teams. So also looking at, I looked at the gold cup in my analysis and broke it down by decade 
And you could kind of see a trend from 1990s versus the 2000s versus 2010s, where the U.S. was faltering a little bit more often and to, to lesser opponents as, uh, as we've gotten to the more recent present. So looking at CONCACAF, um, you know, zooming in a little bit closer to home, the, the, this is the region uh, for the audience that uh, includes North America, Central America, and the Caribbean uh, islands is all one kind of zone within FIFA. Um, you know, so you have in Europe, you have UEFA that, that oversees European soccer. Here we have CONCACAF that oversees North America, Central America, and, and the Caribbean islands uh, when it comes to soccer. So in CONCACAF, in this region, um, what have you seen from a trend standpoint for the U.S. men's national team? Have you seen the national team stagnate, um, get worse, or has this correlated to other nations getting better? And and in in that, did you did, were you able to kind of see why some of those things were happening, or uh, or not? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, when I was looking at the trends uh, by decade, so interestingly, something I wasn't aware of off memory is that in the '90s and in the 2000s. The Gold Cup was a little bit more open to, uh, to competition from uh, South American teams. So, for instance, in the 1990s, the U.S. only had three losses in the Gold Cup, and they were to two to Mexico and one to Brazil. So, you know, nothing, nothing to be ashamed of there. In the 2000s, pretty similar story, only three losses as well. Um, to Mexico, one, Brazil, one, and Colombia. So again, those are all quality teams, nothing to really be ashamed of there. But then in the 2010s, the U.S. had four losses um, and, and two ties. Um, they, they had a couple ties in 2000s as well. But the losses this time were now to one to Mexico, but two to Panama, one to Jamaica, with two ties to Panama as well. And even if you were to talk about now the, the, uh, the CONCACAF Nations League, you know, most recently losing to Canada, I think... It's an interesting question of with of whether the CONCACAF teams are getting stronger, but I think one of the things to note there is that, you know, the U.S. men's national team doesn't exist in a vacuum. So even if the U.S. men's national team is improving, is improving, but other nations are improving faster, they're falling behind. So I certainly think it's a, that there's a story to be told there with in regards to the, the CONCACAF opponents in the U.S., but uh, particularly when we're looking at a global landscape against, you know, teams from Europe and South America and the rest of the world, that's even more apparent. When you compare um, not just the U.S. to CONCACAF, but when you compare CONCACAF to other regions around the world, for example, CONMEBOL or UEFA, how does that, our confederation, how does it you know, measure out against what I consider to be the top two uh, confederations under FIFA in UEFA and CONMEBOL. Is it is it anywhere close, or is it really far down in 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 terms of quality uh, when you look at the the quality of of national teams in those respective confederations? Yeah, that obviously, that was one of the areas where I sliced the data by, and that makes a huge impact when you look at the U.S.'s opponents based on their confederation. And as you can imagine, the U.S. has a, a strong record versus CONCACAF opponents, because for historically, other than Mexico and Costa Rica, the U.S. has been you know the dominant player in the region. But when you look at the U.S.'s re results versus UEFA and South America, Conmebol, it's really eye-opening where against UEFA, the U.S. is only winning about 10% of the time and versus South America, only about 25% of the time. So the, the contrast right there can't really be any wider and it's pretty staggering. And I think it just shows that, you know, playing CONCACAF teams doesn't give you that true that true litmus test of where you stand and rank against, you know, the top nations globally. How does that compare with their winning percentage against CONCACAF opponents? 
so CONCACAF uh, should have left that in in the, the previous response, but um, the U.S. is winning about 83% of their matches versus CONCACAF opponents. So 83% versus CONCACAF versus 11% versus UEFA and 26% versus in South America. So, you know, that's a massive gulf right there. So, you know, if you play cupcakes, you can pad your schedule. You see that in, in, in sports, right? I mean, you see level of opponent maybe weaker. We can kind of look better on paper. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're a better team. And in fact, we may be a worse team, but we're just playing, you know, far more inferior opponents. When we look at the U S national team in the success, uh, what you are finding is that when they stack up against UEFA and Conmebol, there is a big disparity in success on the field in terms of winning percentage compared to CONCACAF. Um, you, you mentioned a moment ago that we may be getting better, but maybe not as fast as other countries are getting better. When you compare CONCACAF as a region to UEFA and CONMEBOL, um, does that, does that also hold up for, for, for the regions, not just the U S national team, but do you think that UEFA and CONMEBOL are getting better at a faster rate than CONCACAF at large is getting better? Yeah, that's something where in some other pieces I've written, I've explored that in a little bit of detail, but that's something that would warrant a deeper investigation on its own. But I think just from an anecdotal standpoint, you look at, you know, just with how competitive those regions are, they're they're forcing all of the countries to really improve. So when I think of UEFA, for example, you see countries like Iceland and Wales, Croatia was a World Cup finalist. These small nations are finding creative ways to improve and test themselves against some of the best countries in the world. Whereas in CONCACAF, you don't have that competitive that competitiveness. So I think you lose that. So while some of the countries in CONCACAF are improving, they don't have that same competitive landscape where they could really jump leaps and bounds like you see in other countries around the world and in the more challenging confederations. One hot topic of recent has been the investments that U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer have made in, in terms of youth development and, you know, the Development Academy, the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. And um, in, in your piece, you said, contrary to popular opinion, I believe the findings of my analysis demonstrate that the player pool has weakened over time. I will concede that the pool has more depth with more players in contention for roster spots, but the top 15 players has absolutely weakened. Um, what led you to that conclusion and what, what data, what data kind of backs that up for you to lead you to that conclusion? Sure. Yeah. And um, this is one of the ones where it's a little harder to point to precise data. And I do think it's important to, um, to bring in the idea of, of rel- relativity because, you know, players in 2002 have to be compared to the competition in 2002 versus players in 2018 versus competition in 2018. But I certainly think that top upper echelon of the pool was stronger. So when you look at the 2002 World Cup team, for example, you have, you know, in the midfield, you have Claudio Reyna, John O'Brien, Demarcus Beasley, Eddie Lewis, um, Ernie Stewart, um, Pablo Mascherini. And then when you look at the team now, or even the team that was trying to qualify for for 2018, you just don't really have the same quality. You have... Michael Bradley, you have Paul Ariola, you have, you know, Darlington Nagby, you have Will Trapp, you have some of these other types of players. It's not the same level, um, in my opinion. So another piece of that, I think, is those players from 2002 had a lot of experience in um, the Confederations Cup and the Olympics, which I really do think is invaluable. And a, bu- a bunch of those players who were starters or key figures in 2002 were part of the rosters and part of the starting lineups 
in the Confederations Cups in the Olympics leading up to that. We, and another, just one, one more point I'll add there. The only contemporary U.S. players that have played in the Olympics or played in a Confederations Cup, it's four players. It's Tim Howard, Clint Dempsey, both, both you know, now retired, and it's Michael Bradley and Josie Altador. So I think that tells you something when we effectively have no experience in two major international tournaments where, you know, all the rest of the world's best players are getting those minutes and those reps at really, you know, high competition. So when you look at the the player pool, you you note that this lack of, of competitive experience in the uh, the Olympics in the Confederations Cup uh, contributed to what what you see as this downward trend. Do you do you also think that some of these players, especially coming out of the uh, the '90s into the early 2000s, uh, were still trying to apply their trade in Europe? Do you think that's also been a factor in what we've seen in terms of the quality of the player pool um, and and its decline as of recent, where more of these players are staying? Uh, domestic playing in major league soccer. Yeah, I think that would contribute certainly to that dynamic. And um, the U S has always had a blend of players um, who were playing club football internationally versus domestically. But again, when you look at 2002 there, you know, you had guys who never, a lot of guys who really never played in MLS who were big contributors. When you're looking at Tony Sané, um, Claudia Reyna, John O'Brien, um, you know, er- Ernie Stewart as well. So Eddie Lewis, uh, I think only played a couple of years in MLS. So I think that makes a big factor with these players who had that competitive club environment for their, the entirety of their careers. When you look at results, um, you know, the high points, you've mentioned this uh, a couple times, that, that the high points for the U.S. men's national team, unlike their, their female counterparts who have won not one, not two, not three, but four World Cups, <laughs> we've gotten nowhere close on the men's side uh, for all of you living under a rock these last uh, almost 30 years. Um, when we look at the U.S. men's national team and their high points, their high moments, you attribute the as being extremely fortuitous occurrences um, that that a lot of things had to go right. Uh, some would ascribe that or describe that as luck. Um, when you look at the high points for the U.S. men's national team, oh, these, these are considered to be anomalies. These are not trends, these moments of success. Is that why you kind of view them in that light? I mean, I, I understand the circumstances of the moment, right? The ball had to go a certain way. Certain result had to go the right way for so, some of these things to work out. But, right. but does it also stick out just because you're not seeing a consistency from a trend standpoint uh, with, with quality of performance that would lead you to believe that these performances, um, you know, are kind of sticking out because of the fact that the U.S. men's national team has been, for the most part, pretty mediocre uh, since the 90s. Yeah, I think that's hitting the nail on the head right there. I think what it is is, um, you know, this is just a statement of fact. The U.S. is yet to play a group stage international competition where they've played three good games. That's just fact, period. But they've had some good results in those tournaments. And there were some positive moments and some negative moments. And I think there's a lack of nuance and even sophistication when people are discussing and thinking about these results. So if we take the 2002 World Cup, for instance, which is probably the crowning achievement for the U.S. men's national team, let's just walk through uh, what happened there. So the U.S. goes up 3-0 over Portugal in the first game. Then Portugal starts to come back, brings it to 3-2 in the second half. The U.S. hangs on for a win. Hey, great way to start your World Cup. Get your three points versus a tough opponent. Then they play the host. They play South Korea. They get outshot. 
They are um, outshot 19 to 6. Their corner kicks are 7 to 0. They saved a penalty kick in that game. But Clint Mathis scores that famous goal. That that's why he's here, comment- commentary over uh, the goal scored. And uh, they get the draw there to get four points. So the U.S. is firmly in the driver's seat going into the last game, controls their own destiny, and they're playing Poland, who's already been eliminated from the tournament. What happens? The U.S. falls behind 3 nothing, eventually losing 3-1. So, you know, right there, I think everyone's thinking the U.S. is going home, and that's a disappointing tournament after such a great start. But lo and behold, South Korea scores late in the second half versus Portugal, who, by the way, South Korea was playing up 11 versus 9 men, and they were the beneficiaries of some really favorable refereeing that entire tournament, including uh, the knockout rounds against Italy, where they had uh, Toti sent off. But uh, So that goal eliminates Portugal and sends the U.S. through. And then we all know what happens after that. Dos Acero versus Mexico, and the U.S. plays a great, great match versus Germany, losing in a controversial, controversial fashion. So credit to the U.S. for, for beating Portugal and for, for really playing their best matches in the knockout rounds. But very easily, if one ball doesn't go in the goal in the South Korea match, the U.S. is going home. And, you know, 2002 is a disappointing World Cup. You know, that's how thin the margins are. And, and that's okay. The margins are thin in these tournaments. But I think we have to have that level of nuance where that was not just a, you know, smashing success of a World Cup. Sure, it had some great, great moments and those we shouldn't forget. But it also, you know, showed some some immaturity where the U.S. couldn't beat a Poland team and, you know, laid an egg in their final game, which could have been really costly. So I think it's and that's that's a theme throughout many of the U.S. successes. And we could go into those as well. But I think it's really critical to have that understanding if we're going to really evaluate progress or lack thereof properly. You said later on that based on the findings, the U.S. Soccer Federation deserves significant criticism. The U.S. men's national team has failed to qualify for the most recent World Cup, three of the last four Confederations Cups, three of the last four Olympics, and multiple youth national team tournaments in the past decade and a half. Furthermore, the U.S. men's national team has only beaten two top 20 teams in the world in a competitive tournament in the past 15 years and has demonstrated a deterioration in performance against regional opponents in the Gold Cup. Looking at all of that, coming to that conclusion... My question to you is, how do we fix it? How do we reverse the downward trend? How do we improve the, uh, the federation and the national team, especially on the men's side, um, to, to not be mediocre at best when it comes to the U.S. men's national team? How do we make it better? Yeah, that's a... That's the million dollar question. That's that's the fantastic question. Um, first, I just want to say, yeah, what you just read. I mean, when you lay it all out there, it's it's pretty sobering to hear all of that. And it's, but that's the reality of of really where where the data shows the results have been. Now, to how do we fix it? Um, well, first and foremost, we can't continue to do what we've been doing. Um, for me, I think it really comes down to the federation and the system at the top that, you know, we have, we are one of the lone countries in the world that has a closed system. We don't have promotion and relegation. We don't have an open pyramid. And I think that is really the mechanism and the ecosystem that can unleash soccer in this country because that there's no other way to, to really run a, a country with how, as big as we are with just 20 some odd professional teams in MLS. It's just, it's just not working. So for me, that's the fundamental structural thing that really needs to change before I think we're going to start seeing different results. So, um, 
looking at that in a macro perspective, uh, open system access opportunity, uh, we look at where we are right now where you have a closed system that you have to pay to get in. You don't have to finish, you know, the, the top of your league to, to get that opportunity. You could finish last as Minnesota United did. And then the next year they're playing a major league soccer. Um, yep. You know, so when we look at that, uh, what kind of uh, effects have you done any studies about what kind of effects that might have on investment, on uh, participation, on, um, you know, the, the, impacts of not having access in these in these communities have you have you done any research on that have you been able to find um you know any data sets that would back up what we what we believe to be true because we see this around the world um in in makes logical sense but have you have you actually found any data that supports some of that uh from you know from a scientific uh, or mathematical standpoint yeah, that's where it's hard to quantify what you can't measure since we haven't allowed open investment. It's hard to say how much has been left on the table. But I, I wrote a piece, one of the ways I think about it, and I think this is just the most simple way to really get to the crux of the issue. I look at Atlanta United MLS. I look at LAFC this year. These are clubs that did not exist. They literally were not even a fragment of someone's imagination they come out of the blue just from scratch. And in less than two years, three years, they're the best team in MLS. And if that's not an indictment of a closed system and how grossly inefficient it is, I don't know what is. Because I can't think of any other industry or any other competitive leagues where a new team could usurp any incumbents that have had decades head starts in a matter of you know, 20 some odd months. So, you know, to me, um, the merit matters and it should matter. Um, and when you, when you don't face the consequences of your actions, uh, by not putting a great product on the field, not having to invest in a player pool, um, you know, trying to, to, to operate in a way where athletes don't get paid, um, what they could be paid in a fair market because you control, um, you know, things in such a way that you can keep what you have to pay the players, um, as low as possible. In other words, when you look at all of those things, quality is not necessarily the biggest priority, so when you do have a team that comes in and says, we want to try to do it well, and we want to try to build something big and build something great, you see an Atlanta United come into the league and, you know, light the league on fire on the field as well as off the field, the stadium environment. And yep. and then you look around the league and you're scratching your head going, man, the, the New England Revol- Revolution looked like they, they play in front of, you know, 3,000 people in an empty stadium uh, up there in New England. Uh, and, and, and you've had 20 years to build something um, yeah. and, and not had to pay for any of your mistakes. Um, you know, you've not had to, to really invest that much money into to what you've done on the, uh, the soccer side of the ledger uh, because you got in early. And so others, when they're buying in they're 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 you're getting a dividend, you're getting a payout every time they join the league. Um, you 100%. know, so, I mean, why, why, why have you not, um, you know, made quality a priority? Well, that's the league's not set up for quality, uh, quite frankly, that major league soccer isn't, it is, it is set up, you know, and, and Alexi Lawless likes to celebrate parody. You know, anybody can win. Um, you know, well, if the quality's that low where anybody can win, you're never going to see excellence. Um, you're never going to reach a level of excellence when it comes to a global standard because quality will always rise and it will show itself um, to be superior uh, when given the chance. And you see that in other sports uh, where teams do it well, they stand out, um, and you know, even in systems that are closed, 
the ideas of drafts and all those things, which I'm not a big fan of, are efforts to try to help the weak get better, not necessarily to always punish those doing it well. Um, even in the NBA, the 90s, you saw a dynasty in Chicago. You saw the Lakers have a lot of success in the 2000s, the Spurs as well. Um, you know, the Warriors of recent in the NBA. You've seen, and even going back before uh, into the 80s, the Lakers, the Celtics um, having a lot of success. So it's not to say that uh, a closed system um, just by itself is going to to limit quality, although it does. It's never going to let the best reach their full potential. But what I see in Major League Soccer is that that quality is not high on the priority list. So in achieving their level of parity, it's let's keep everything down not raise everything up. I mean, if if the whole league were Barcelona, we'd all be going crazy. Like, this is amazing. Um, but it's not. And so, you know, like you, I think that the market should have the opportunity to determine quality, that it should be opened up and it should be based on merit. We should allow clubs to invest, to connect to their communities, to put down roots. Uh, We've seen it even uh, recently with, with um, you know, the, the team uh, up in, in USL league one Lansing and ignite and, and their owner basically pulling the plug after a year and going, yeah, not real interested in doing this anymore. Um, You know, that was a team that came in, bought a franchise, went by the U.S. soccer rules, and after a year hit the eject button and said, look, this is just not for me. I don't want to lose money, and I don't think this is worth it. Not a soccer guy, but we don't allow in other types of ownership groups or other types uh, of investments to, to the game because we've pigeonholed ourselves, painted ourselves into a corner where only – one way is allowed and that way is the is the way that has led us to a league like major league soccer in the usl uh uh as well in in the in the championship in league one and so i think we i think we got to change it i think we definitely have to open things up i think your data points to uh, you know a trend that those of us who have been following the u.s national team for a long time uh, have noticed and you've been able to kind of put some real numbers behind that how can people follow your work and read more of your work and dig into to these stories themselves and uh and kind of really do a deep dive on on what you've been able to uncover so far yeah sure i have a, a number of pieces i write at the the 93rd minute soccer blog that's at the 93rd minute.net or on twitter i'm at k to the dubs that's k the number two the dubs but yeah i'm uh i'm writing about these topics and I have a number of um, other articles filled with data and analysis on U.S. soccer. So, yeah, check it out. And there's there's a lot of great insights there that I think, you know, I learned and I'd love to share with uh, the community at large. Well, Kyle, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show, spending some time with us, uh, sharing your thoughts and, uh, and, and and your conclusions based on this, this data that you've gone through. Uh, it's fascinating, and uh, it really, really paints to me a clear picture of where we really are with the U.S. Men's National Team program and, um, and that it's a system issue more so than a managerial issue. We're just not getting the right uh, developmental environments to produce players of a good enough quality uh, yet in this country and we've got to change it we've got to make it better so Kyle thanks for joining the show we really appreciate it thanks for uh, thanks for coming on Uh, we look forward to having you back on again soon all right thanks so much Daniel thank you that is Kyle Williams with uh, the 93rd minute Uh, check him out online and on Twitter we'll be right back after this No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. 
lead water and a lack of toilets. Kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. I'd like to thank Kyle for uh, joining us today and um, really appreciate his time, his research, his data, all of that. Really, really, really fascinating stuff. Look forward to getting back to the article we kicked off the show with today at thenation.com. Um, a really good piece, and uh, there's there's a lot more to cover. And uh, we look forward to getting back into that tomorrow. As always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielwerkman.com. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for watching. We'll see everybody again tomorrow.